Hello, welcome to City Hope Church. Today, Pastor Peter Pilt will be bringing a Mother's Day message on daring faith through the story of Esther. I've never preached a sermon on Esther. And this week as I was praying and I'm thinking, I, I, I want to preach a, a, a sermon that's honouring of, of mothers or women. And uh, I've got this new series, Daring Faith. And I was praying about it, thinking about it. And I thought there's no greater woman in the Bible that I can think of. Well, there's a few, but uh, certainly up there in, in terms of great ladies in the Bible is Esther. And so I, I started pulling apart and reading through uh, the book of Esther. And I've, I've read through the Bible a few times. So I've kind of danced through Esther, but I've never actually sat and just pondered and thought and looked a little deeper at the book of Esther. And so what I want to do is I want to tell the story over the next probably 15 or 20 minutes. I want to tell the story of Esther in, in, in a fair detail so that you get the enormity of what's actually going on in the book of Esther. And then I've got five points on courageous or daring faith or heroes that, that come out of that. And, uh, and then at the end of the service at 25 past 10, the kids are going to come in and they're going to do a little item and they've got presents for the mums. And so that's going to end. We're going to be Stirred in our daring faith, and then we got the cute factor happening. So uh, that's the next 36 minutes in the life, in your life. Uh, anyway, so the book starts off in about 536 BC, uh, so about 500 years before Jesus Christ, and it's talking about the the, the people that are still caught. In, in captivity in Babylon. In around 536 BC, a remnant of the Jews went back to Israel under the leadership of a priest called Zerubbabel. Uh, but there was a, that was just a remnant and, and most of the children of Israel at the time were, were stuck in Babylon under, uh, under slave, slave ship and the rulership of a guy by the name of uh, King Xerxes. And that name is actually changed interchangeably in the, in the, through Esther. He's called different things. But uh, ultimately, uh, I'm going to refer to him as King, King Xerxes. So he was on the throne from 485 BC until his assassination at the hands of one of his uh, high-ranking officials in 465. So King Xerxes reigns for 20 years before he's assassinated. And King Xerxes was a king of immense power. There was 127 provinces under his rulership and he basically ruled the known world at that point in time except for the nation of Greece. So he was a, 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 a very powerful king, a, a real world-dominating, world-dictator of a king. And he ruled from his capital, uh, Susa. And the, the first chapter starts off with the King Xerxes having a banquet. Now, you might think a banquet might last four or five hours or a, a, a big banquet might last a couple of days. But this banquet went 180 days. And he put the banquet on because he wanted to impress all the provincial leaders. So he got all his officials in, the leaders of his provinces. He got everybody that, that he wanted to impress. And for 180 days, he showed them his incredible power, his incredible wealth, his incredible majesty and, and all the stuff. And part of this was because he planned in the not too distant future to invade Greece. And so he kind of wanted to show his 127 provincial leaders how powerful he was so that they would support him and send, his, send him armies so that he would be successful in his invasion of Greece. In Esther 1 and verse 4, it says, When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendour of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. After the 180-day feast, you would think that he'd partied out. 
But he went on and he, he then had a feast straight after that lasted for seven days. And instead of inviting all the provincial leaders, he invited all the little people in his kingdom. So anybody in the, in the, in the kingdom was welcome to come to his, uh, to, his, uh, to his palace and have this seven day feast. Esther 1 and verse 5 says, And when these days were complete, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shashan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king. So the, the, the king was very much into, into feasting and partying, and, and it was all about uh, the fact that he, he wanted to, to look good. So during the seven-day feast, the, the, the kings had a bit too much wine. And so he's a, bit, he's a little bit, uh, let's say, so we say, happy. And so he says to his servants, go and get my queen. Go and get Queen Vashti. And it actually says uh, in um, Esther 1 and verse 10, 11, on the, on the seventh day, so at the end, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven guys, his seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Asherah, which is Xerxes, that's the name change, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. Now some commentators say that the command was that the queen came before all the people only wearing her royal crown. Okay, do you get what we're saying here? Right, because the king was drunk and the king was, was wanting to show her incredible beauty. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's a thought. But So the king demands that the queen comes and parades herself before all the, uh, all the people. But the, the queen said no. Now you, let, let me just put an asterisk to this sermon. You've got to remember, this story is not in 2018. Okay, women were treated differently and expected to act differently back in those days. Okay, so just, just asterisk that. So in Esther 1 and verse 12, it says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the, queen's, at the, at the king's command and uh, brought by the eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. So he, what was happening was he wanted to appear powerful and he can't even get his queen to just come and just hang out. So his ego is deeply wounded and he's really angry. And so then what he does is he, he gets his, his council together. It's kind of like the Supreme Court of, of, of the, the land. And he gets his council together and he says, what should we do with the queen? And they, the, 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 the court said, you've got to punish her. Because what if the other wives around the nation start to do what the queens did and actually start to say no to their husbands? I mean, God forbid that they should have an opinion. <laughs> and so they said, we've got, to, we've got to punish her. And so what they did was they... They uh, made a law according to the Medes and the Persians. Now, this is an important law. The law according to the Medes and the Persians can't be repealed. So once it's law, it's law. And so what they did was they banished her from the king's presence according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. So if she ever came into the presence of the king again, she would be murdered. She would be assassinated. That's chapter one. Chapter two starts four years later. And it starts off with King Xerxes making a disastrous attempt to conquer Greece and it fails. And so he returns home to his castle in utter disgrace. And what happens is he returns home to his castle and he walks in and he just wanted a hug from his wife. He wanted a hug from the queen. He wanted someone to tell him that it was going to be okay because he was depressed and despondent and defeated. And so he just he walked into this castle and there was nobody there. 
Why? Because he'd banished her for four, four years ago. But all of a sudden, he's missing his wife. And so he goes into a, a type of depression that the, 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 the people around him see that he's depressed. And so they come up with a brilliant idea. And that is, you've got to find yourself another queen. And so what they do is they, they say, now you've got to bear in mind that his, his advisors were all just like young men, right? So they say that we want you to find a queen, but not, not a queen based on uh, leadership ability or poise or, or maturity or wisdom, or, uh, but just, just something to smoke and hot. Uh, that's basically it. I mean, that's my terminology, but that's effectively what they're saying. Uh, Esther uh, 2 and verse 2 and to 4 says, Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins, uh, which is smoking hot, be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that he may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of that guy, the king's eunuch, who was a custodian of women, and let beauty preparations be given to them, then the young woman who pleases the king uh, will, be, will be queen instead of Vashti. And this thing pleased the king, and so he did it. So the king loves the idea, right, and, and decides to hold a Miss Universe pageant. So all the people, all the, all the women gather, and, and one, of the women, one of the girls that gathers is, is uh, a, a lady by the name of Esther. Now Esther was an orphan who had been raised by her cousin Mordecai. In Esther 2 and verse 7, it says, And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own. Now here's a question. Women, mothers, how long does it take you to get ready? Like a long time. I've got a wife and two daughters. I get, the, I get it, okay? It's a long time. Right, and but here they took twelve months to get Esther ready, and the other ladies to get to get Esther Esther ready. So what happened was all the all the uh, the women were paraded before the the king, and then the king kind of picked his kind of top twelve. The, he, they kind of made it through to the to the to the grand final, and then it was twelve months from between before uh, between then and when. Esther was ready and the other 11 women were ready, uh, they uh, took 12 months. In Esther 2 and verse 12, it says, Each young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes after she had completed 12 months preparation. 12 months. According to the regulations for women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Let me just asterisk this for a minute. I'm still amazed that in today and, uh, today's day and age, we have Miss Universe contests. Because I'm amazed that, that, that we think it's still acceptable to parade women and pick them on their beauty rather than actually engaging with them as a person. And I know that they ask like, the questions to try and get their brains, but I actually blog a lot and uh, I blogged after last year's Bathurst race. Uh, if we go to the next screen, um, have I got my blog up there? Yeah, great. Uh, Anyone else confused at the irony of the Bathurst 1000 organisers using women as decorations after finding a driver for misogyny? So a driver had made a comment, a derogatory comment about a woman and was fined $25,000, but yet the grid girls are there as decorations. And, and to, me, to me who have, have, have daughters, I go, we're, we're beyond, these days we're beyond using women as decorations. Uh, and, and I just think that we need to speak up about that, but anyway, that's another thing and we need to keep going because otherwise I'm running out of time. So Esther wins the competition. 
Esther 2 and verse 7 says, then, then the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set a royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So now Esther's the queen, right? So there's a Jewish girl. She's now queen. And Mordecai, uh, cousin Mordecai, follows her to the castle, and he gets a job at the king's gate. And something happens where he, the, uh, Mordecai overhears two of the king's army uh, officers plotting to kill the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the king inquires about it, finds out that it was true, and the king's life is saved. In Exodus 2, uh, sorry, Esther 2 and verse 23, and when, all, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed and both were hanged on the gallows and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that's an important thing, the fact that it was noted down. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3 opens with uh, the king honouring an evil man called Haman the Agite. Now, now uh, in Esther 3 and verse 2 it says, And all the king's servants who were with, within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. So, there was the, so everybody in the, in the kingdom had to bow down to Haman, but Mordecai couldn't bow down to Haman, Haman because he was a Jew and Jews didn't bow down to anybody but God. But Haman really hated that. He was enraged. And so he came up with an idea uh, of, of how he's going to get revenge. Rather than just wanting to kind of assassinate Mordecai, Haman comes up with the idea, I'm going to kill all the Jews. I'm going to kill all of the people. There was such hatred. And so at the beginning of each year, the king would cast lots called Pur. And he would find out which day of the year was going to be the luckiest day of the year. And so the, uh, King Xerxes cast lots this one year and he, it falls to the 13th of December. Now it wasn't quite the 13th, it's the 13th of the 12th month. But for ease of us thinking about it, it was the 13th of December. And so that's going to be his lucky day. In Esther 3 and verse 8 and 9, Then Haman said to the king, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree to be written that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring in the, into the king's treasuries. So what he's saying is Haman is planning to wipe out all the Jews because of Mordecai and he's saying to the king, let's do it on your lucky day. And so the king thinks that's a great idea. And so uh, Esther 3 and verse 13 to 19 talks about how the letters were sent out and uh, that it was, it was a done deal and it was done according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which we know can't be repealed. So this is, this is going to happen. doesn't matter what, what twist or turns or happen or intervention or anything, this is actually going to happen. There's going to be attack against the Jews on the 13th of December of this year. Well, Esther was in a secluded place in the palace, so she didn't hear about this, but Mordecai did. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, you've got to, you've got to go and talk to the king. Now, this is where the climax of the book starts to happen. Because initially, Esther says, uh, says no. Uh, Esther 4 and verse 10 and 12, it says, Then Esther spoke to Hathax and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law and that's to be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the scepter. And I myself have not been called for 30 days. What the deal was, the king, you couldn't just walk into the king's presence because you would just be killed. Unless the king took pity on you and held out his golden scepter, then you wouldn't be killed. 
Now Esther hasn't gone to the king's presence for 30 days and so she, she she's kind of wants to do something but she goes, you know, I don't want to give my life. I don't want to walk into the king's presence because he may not hold out his scepter and then I'm going to get killed. So he basically says to Mordecai, I'm not doing it. Mordecai sends back this answer in Esther 4 and verse 13. Mordecai told them to answer, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther says in Esther 4 and verse 15 to 17, go and gather all the Jews who are present in Sashan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days or nights. Uh, my maids and I will fast likewise and I will go to the king. Uh, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So ultimately she goes into the king. She goes into the king, and the king holds out the scepter and, the, and, and says, and I'm just going to stop reading the scriptures because I'm running out of time now, so I'm just going to tell you the rest of the story. So what happens then is that the king holds out his scepter and says to, to Queen Esther, what do you want? And Queen Esther says, I want you and Haman to come to a banquet tomorrow night. And the king says, sure, no problems, I'll do that. So the next night, Haman and uh, the king go to a banquet and they're, they're, they're eating and drinking and making merry. And the king says to Esther, okay, Esther, what do you want? And she says, I want you to come to another banquet tomorrow night and then I'll tell you my request. And the king says, okay. Now, Mordecai on the way, uh, sorry, Haman on the way home from that particular party goes past Mordecai. Mordecai won't bow down and, and Haman goes home and he's so angry. And so his wife says, well, why don't you build a whole big set of, of gallows and go and ask the king if you can hang Mordecai on the gallows? And so that night he does. He goes and gets, gets his team and they build a huge gallows, 75 feet high, about 20 metres high. And then the next morning he goes into the king and, the, and says to the king, hey, king, and before he's able to get it out, hey, can I hang Mordecai? The king says, Hey, I was reading through, I couldn't sleep last night, and I was reading through the annals of the king, and I came across, or the chronicles of the king, and I came across somebody that I want to honour. What should I do to honour that person? And Haman thought, oh, that's got to be me. And so he goes, well, I would put a, a, a coat on that the king has worn, and I'd get a horse that the king has ridden on, and I would get a big sign that says, this guy's awesome, and, and I would parade him through the streets and get everybody to worship him. And the king says, that's brilliant. Can you go and do that to Mordecai? Because <laughs> Mordecai had never been thanked for saving the king. So Haman, who was about to go and ask the king to hang Mordecai, now has to spend the day honouring Mordecai. So he does that. And that night, there's another, there's another party. It's the king and Haman. And uh, so they, they're making merry. And then the king says, okay, Esther, we've done enough partying. What do you want? And she says, I want you to spare my people. And the king says, what now? She says, well, what's happening is that on the 13th of December, there's a, a law going out from the, by the Medes and the Persians that all my people are going to be destroyed because I'm Jewish. And the king says, well, who did that? And, and Esther says, well, Haman did it. Well, the king's angry, like he's ticked, right? And so the king goes out to the balcony because he's so angry. He goes out to the balcony. Haman realises that he's lost the favour of the king and so he falls down on Esther's lap begging for his life. The king comes in, sees that he, or thinks that the king is assaulting his wife and takes Haman out and hangs him on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. 
So on his own gallows, he gets hung. Okay, that's called burn. <laughs> but there's still the problem of the law and the Medes and the Persians and the fact that on the 13th of December, which is now very close, that all the Jews are going to be wiped out from the nation. So what they do is they, uh, they issue another law, another decree, that says all the Jewish people can fight back. And so they arm the Jewish people and they, there's, there's, there's a few scuffles, but pretty much, well, not pretty much, no Jewish people were killed on the 13th of December because of Haman's law. And Esther saves the Jews from extinction and annihilation. That's the story of, of Esther. And, and the Jews now celebrate, uh, celebrate Pur because Pur was the day that Xerxes would cast lots to see what day was going to be his lucky day and he called it Pur and the, the Jews now um, in February or March they, they uh, have a festival called Purim, P-U-R-I-M which is actually to remember the battle between Xerxes and the Jews through Esther. So that's still a, a festival they do today. So in the next 10 minutes I want to just give you five examples of what I think heroes. I think Esther's a hero, hero to her people. I think she's a, 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 an inspirational woman. And uh, so five things that heroes do. Number one, heroes take advantage of the opportunities placed before them. Erwin <laughs> McManus, in his book, Seizing Your Divine Moment, writes this. I think this is on the screen. Is this on the screen? Yeah, great. That's a bit small. Okay, for those under 20 that can read that. Seizing your device, uh, it says, what if you knew somewhere in front of you was a moment that would change your life forever? A moment rich with potential, a moment filled with endless possibilities. What if you knew there was a moment coming, a divine moment, one where God would meet you in such a way that nothing would be the same again? What if there was a moment, a defining moment, where the choices you made determine the course and momentum of your future? How would you treat that moment? How would you prepare for it? How would you identify it? Moments are as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. Any one of them could prove to be your most significant divine moment. However, however mundane a moment may appear, the miraculous may wait to be unwrapped within it. You rarely know the internal significance of a moment. When a moment is missed, you have a glimpse at an opportunity lost. When you dream, you look to a moment still to come. Yet the only moment you must take responsibility for right now is the one in front of you. There may well be many moments waiting behind this one. And though, and though the most significant moments of your life may still be moments away, the moment you are in right now waits to be seized. And I think there's a danger that we, we either have great memories of the past and we're looking forward to the future and we never live in the present. It's the same with our screens. We all pick up our screens and you know, we sit, sit there and have dinner together and all pick up our screens and never actually enjoy the present and the people that we're with. So I think heroes take advantage of opportunities placed before them and I certainly think uh, Esther did that. Heroes seek God through prayer and fasting. I love the fact that, that when Esther said, okay, I'm going to do this, her reaction was, okay, I'm going to, go, I'm going to fast. And, and she's going to call Mordecai to fast and the Jews in, in the nation to fast, that there was a, an immediate, okay, th we're in a spiritual battle here, we've got to fast. I, I love the fact in Matthew 6 where it talks about the three pillars of Matthew, Matthew 6, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. It's not if you give, it's not if you pray, it's not if you fast, it's when. 
And we as Christians need to have throughout our life punctuated by seasons of fasting and seeking God for, 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 for particular things. Number three, heroes overcome their fear by trusting God. One of the major reasons why people don't step out in daring faith is because they fear. It's like when Peter, Peter was invited to get out of the boat by, by Jesus. Jesus said, come. There was a moment then that Peter had to think, am I in faith or am I in fear? Because the 11, the 11 other disciples were cowering in the bow of the boat because they knew that the boat was about to sink. So they're cowering in fear. So there was one man that had faith, 11 had fear. But Peter got out and walked on water. He stepped out of the boat. He's walking on water. And then he sees the surrounding thunder and lightning and the waves and fear does enter him and he sinks. But the Bible says, and I love it, that Jesus was immediately there to grab his hand and together they walked back to the boat. Now, Peter got a bit wet that night, but I would rather be a wet water walker than a dry boat worshipper. I would rather step out in faith rather than be fearful cowering in the bow of the boat. So heroes overcome their fear by trusting in God. Number four, heroes realise that God is always at work. The book of Esther and the book of Song of Solomon are the only two books in the Bible that controversially don't mention God. There's no mention of God in, in the book of Esther at all. But yet we see the, the provincial hand of God, the guiding hand of God, whether it be the fact that Mordecai was there to raise a young Esther, whether it was there that the fact that Mordecai overheard the, 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 the assassination attempt, whether it was the fact that Esther was, was even made beautiful enough to attract the king. Uh, all, the, all the different things you see, you see the provincial hand of God just guiding, just directing, massaging the circumstances to, to get to the ultimate expression of what God wanted. And there's been times in my life, many times in my life, that, that I wouldn't necessarily say, well, that was a God moment. But six months down the track, I go, wow, that was a God moment. And I've been through many, many seasons and moments in my life where, where I don't particularly sense God, I don't particularly God uh, directing, I don't particularly God, uh, I feel God kind of speaking. But in hindsight, I go, man, the, the hand of God was all over that. And I'm humbled by that. And so we need to understand that God is at work even when we think that he's not at work. Number, f number five, heroes aren't silent. He says to, to, to Esther, you know, if, you're, if you remain silent, deliverance will come from somewhere else. I mean, a, a donkey at one point spoke to, to Balaam and, and so he says, what if... You were called to this place for such a time as this. Now, I want to finish my sermon with a little bit of controversy. I'm not really sure I should play this video in church, but that's never stopped me. <laughs> I read an article where it talked about how as Nazi Germany rose, as Hitler rose to power, particularly the Christians in Nazi Germany were silent. They didn't say anything. And this is, this is a clip. And so I went looking for that story and I came across this clip and I've seen it before. Now, it's, it's about Muslims and Islam. But what I want you to get is I want you to get how this woman quotes a whole stack of figures and how it talks about the silent majority. 
And I think that we in Australia right now have been bullied into silence. I think Christians and people with conservative views have been bullied into silence. And I think at some point, if we stay silent, the evil that is, that is permeating our schools, the evil that is permeating both sides of politics, this is not a political statement here this morning. Uh, I'm talking about Christian values in our nation are being fast eroded and very few people are saying anything. And I want us to be a church that speaks up. I mean, I started my blog specifically for the purpose of actually having a voice outside of the four walls of the church. Now, I'm running out of time. We've, the, the kids are going to be here at 10.25, so let's play this clip. And, and if, if you don't agree with the clip, that's okay. I don't mind people disagreeing with me. That's, that's okay. This is a robust discussion. I want, I, I want my church to be a church of thinkers, uh, uh, articulate apologists. But to me, this is concerning and inspiring all at the same time. Assalamualaikum. Peace to you all. My name is Saba Ahmed. I'm a law student at American University. I am here to ask you a simple question. I know that we portray Islam and all Muslims as bad, but there's 1.8 billion Muslim followers of Islam. We have 8 million plus Muslim Americans in this country, and I don't see them represented here. But my question is, how can we fight an ideological war with weapons? How can we ever end this war? The jihadist ideology that you talk about, it's an ideology. How can you ever win this thing if you don't address it ideologically? Great question. I am so glad you're here and I am so glad you brought that up because it gives us an opportunity to answer. What I find so amazing is since the beginning of this panel, which we are here about Benghazi attack against our people, not one person mentioned Muslims, we are here against Islam, or we're launching war against Muslims. We are here to discuss how four Americans died and what our government is doing. We were not here to bash Muslims. You were the one who brought up the issue about most Muslims, not us. And since you brought it up, allow me to elaborate with my answer. There are 1.2 billion Muslims in the world today. Of course not all of them are radicals. The majority of them are peaceful people. The radicals are estimated to be between 15 to 25 percent according to all intelligence services around the world. That leaves 75 percent of them peaceful people. But when you look at 15 to 25 percent of the world Muslim population, you're looking at 180 million to 300 million people dedicated to the destruction of Western civilization. That is as big of the United States. So why should we worry about the radicals 15 to 25 percent? Because it is the radicals that kill. Because it is the radicals that behead and massacre. When you look throughout history, when you look at all the lessons of history, most Germans were peaceful. Yet the Nazis drove the agenda. And as a result, 60 million people died. Almost uh, 14 million in concentration camps. 6 million were Jews. The peaceful majority were irrelevant. When you look at Russia, most Russians were peaceful as well. Yet the Russians were able to kill 20 million people. The peaceful majority were irrelevant.
When you look at China, for example, most Chinese were peaceful as well. Yet the Chinese were able to kill 70 million people. The peaceful majority were irrelevant. When you look at Japan prior to World War II, most Japanese were peaceful as well. Yet Japan was able to butcher its way across Southeast Asia, killing 12 million people, mostly killed with bayonets and shovels. The peaceful majority were irrelevant. On September 11th in the United States, we had 2.3 million Arab Muslims living in the United States. It took 19 hijackers, 19 radicals to bring America down to its knees, destroy the World Trade Center, attack the Pentagon, and, and kill almost 3,000 Americans that day. The peaceful majority were irrelevant. So for all our powers of reasons and us talking about moderate and peaceful Muslims, I'm glad you're here. But where are the others speaking out? And since you are the only Muslim representative... Muslim representative in here, you took the limelight instead of speaking about why our government, and I assume are you an American? You're an American citizen. So as an American citizen, you sat in this room and instead of standing up and saying a question or asking something about our four Americans that died and what our government is doing to correct the problem, you stood there to make a point about peaceful, moderate Muslims. I wish you brought 10 with you to question about what, how we can hold our government responsible. It is time we take political correctness and throw it in the garbage where it belongs and stop calling it. She, she's, she's made the point, and at the end she says, we need to get rid of being so PC, politically correct, that we say nothing. And, and I just think that, that I'm inspired by that because I go, you know what, I don't want to be the silent, peaceful majority. Now that doesn't mean to say that I want to pull up, you know, get out my gun and go to war. All I'm saying is that we need to speak up like Esther did. Because what if for our nation, what if for Western democracy, and again, this is not anti-Islam, it, it's, it's, it's anti-humanism, it's, it's you know, anything that would destroy what I believe is the Christian values that Australia was founded on and Western democracies were founded on. We need to speak up. And Esther, I, I think if there's one takeaway that I want you to get out of the book of Esther, maybe you and I are here, maybe City Hope is birthed uh, last week uh, as, as a new, new name and new church. Maybe we're birthed for such a time as this. Just a thought. Now that's a heavy way to end, but that's okay. Because now we're going to end with cutesies. <laughs> All right. Hope you enjoyed that message. Please tune in next week. And from everyone at City Hope Church, have an awesome day.